Welcome to episode 64. Today, Dr. Sonia Soltero joins us to talk about her book called School-Wide Approaches to Educating ELs. Welcome to the Empowering ELs podcast. I'm Tan Nguyen, and the goal of this podcast is to serve language learners just like me and to empower passionate teachers just like you. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Every cloud has. In last week's podcast, we visited with Dr. Esther de Dion, who talked about the principles of multilingual education. We continue with the same theme to learn about dual language programs with Dr. Sonia Soltero. Take note of how the principles that Sonia and Esther shared are both aligned. You're also going to learn about the composition that Sonia recommends for dual language programs. How much of the day should students be using a language other than English? And how much of the day should students be receiving instruction in English? Since I am a language specialist, this was completely new to me. Sonia is also going to start the podcast reading a few paragraphs from her book. Listen to this school's journey from being an English-only school to a dual language institution. Lastly, Sonia and I spend a significant amount of time talking about the myths around language learners. Now, on to today's podcast. It's my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Sonia Sotero. She is a consultant, professor, chair, and author of many books for language learners. And today in particular, I want to talk about a book that she wrote called School-Wide Approaches to Educating ELLs, Creating Linguistically and Culturally Responsive K-12 Schools. And though you wrote it several years ago in 2011, it's so very, very relevant in our current context. So welcome to the podcast, uh, Dr. Soltero. Uh, please call me Sonia, and thank you so much for inviting me and to participate in this wonderful dialogue about the passion that we share, which is language education and bilingual education and um, children and, and learning. Yes. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with you and, and sharing our passion. Oh, and you're right, it is our passion because we've lived it. Both of us are English yes. learners or language learners. And we yes. understand the pain that our family feels and we felt. Yes. And the hope that we, and the gratitude we feel for teachers who extend, who extend so much of their, of their heart to us. Exactly. Teaching is not an easy profession. Oh. And you have to love it to stay in it. Yes. And definitely in this distance learning experience as well. <laughs> yes. Can you introduce yourself and give us a little context of who you are and your work? Of course. Um, so I, I was uh, born and raised in Latin America, and I lived in several countries in Latin America. So I was a bit of an immigrant, even in a Spanish-speaking uh, world. And um, I was actually a product of dual language education, although it was not called dual language. It's called bilingual education in Latin America. Um, and I came to uh, the university. Um, I 
uh, graduated from the University of Arizona uh, while I was teaching. And in Tucson, Arizona, I was teaching in the uh, Yaqui Native American Reservation in the outskirts in uh, Tucson Unified School District. And I fell in love. I fell in love with teaching. I fell in love with bilingual education. I just happened to get a job a week before school started, my first mm -hmm. job. And uh, I wasn't planning on being a bilingual teacher. I was just a Spanish speaker. And then I just, within a week, I knew this was going to be my lifelong passion. Um, and then I moved to Chicago, um, where I taught in Chicago public schools for a bit. And now I'm at DePaul University, and I do, um, I teach the courses for the bilingual and ESL and literacy endorsements. And I do pre-service and service uh, teacher preparation. And I also uh, work with school districts across the United States, and I work with commissions and other entities that are all related to language education. Which means you have this death of experience, that like you were a practitioner, and then you moved to a researcher, and now you're, you're teaching, you're preparing the next wave of teachers. So we're yes. grateful for that. Yes, uh, and what keeps me grounded is working in schools and working right. with districts. It keeps me grounded in, in, in what's happening uh, in the trenches and what's happening with, with families and, and students and, and teachers and, and educators. Well, speaking of staying connected to schools and districts, would you talk, tell us about a story about a teacher or a parent or, or admin or a district where, you, where their story exemplifies school-wide success for language? Yes, there, there are so many, but I, I'd like to read uh, from my book, uh, School-Wide Approaches. Yes. Um, the the um, I just share the Newgate Elementary um, School experience, and I changed the names of all the, the people in my book and the, and the schools. So I just want to share with you uh, what I what I shared in my book yes. about uh, Newgate Elementary. About 15 years ago, Newgate Elementary School began to experience a steady flow of Spanish-speaking language learners, as more and more Latino families immigrated directly into the suburban community, bypassing the usual ports of entry in the nearby city. At the time, the school opted for an ESL pull-out program because most teachers and the principal believed that language learners would be better served through this type of English support service. Because the staff had little previous experience with or knowledge of language learners, the decision to offer ESL pull-out was loosely based on their success with the speech pull-out program. Even though the needs of native English speakers who have who had speech problems are entirely different from the language needs of language learners, the staff was not aware of the differences between the second language needs of, of English language learners and the speech pathology needs of native English speakers. Mm. They confounded those two. Mm. After a while, the school began to get a sense about these differences and realized that there were other options for English language learners besides an ESL pull-out program. Yes. Because language learners were clearly not integrating well in the school and were not making adequate progress academically in English, the principal and teachers decided to look into other types of programs. They began by conducting a comprehensive needs assessment that not only focused on English language learners, but all, on all student needs. Yes. From the information collected about that, what was working and what needed improvement, what resources they had and what resources they would need, and what goals to focus on, the principal and a group of teachers created a plan of action that included native language instruction for English language learners something that they had never thought about. I just always thinking sort of an English-centric approach yes. uh, to language learners. 
the first year, Newgate implemented a Spanish-English transitional bilingual education program in K-1 and continued offering ESL to students in grades two to six. The second year, they were able to hire a second grade bilingual teacher, and the following year, they added a third grader. One of the challenges they faced was to increase the number of bilingual teachers. By creating a five-year strategic plan, the school committed to replacing any teachers who retired, relocated, or left the teaching profession with bilingual certified teachers. The principal was careful to send the message to all teachers that their jobs were secure. A cause of concern when schools move from English only to bilingual instruction, whether it's transitional bilingual or dual language program, is that the non-bilingual teachers may feel that their jobs are at risk. Yes. This in turn can fuel mainstream teachers' negative feelings, not only toward the bilingual program and teachers, but also toward the ELLs themselves. Yes, exactly. A few years after moving from ESL Pula to transitional bilingual education and experiencing a substantial increase in their ELL enrollment, the school decided to reevaluate their program and conduct another in-depth needs assessment. One of the needs that the school identified was to offer all students some type of world language learning opportunity, given that the district had identified foreign language offerings in elementary school as part of their strategic plan. The school decided to implement a dual language program that would offer bilingual education services for English learners and Spanish as a second language program for native English speakers. By selecting a 50-50 or partial immersion model, the principal was able to redesign a dual language program where bilingual teachers and monolingual English teachers team taught and share responsibility for both the language learners uh, in English and the native English speakers. New Gates was able to evaluate their existing program and successfully modify them to fit the changing demographic and needs of its students. So this speaks to the, the notion that um, Program redesign uh, takes time yes. and takes effort and takes a will. Uh, without the will and without the buy-in, uh, these programs fail if they're not well thought out and um, sort of, you know, that include a, a PR campaign of sorts, an education campaign of the adults, both in the community, at the district level, and in the school itself. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate how you, in the story, you talked about a gradual approach, uh, doing one year, the next year hiring one second grade bilingual teacher. And then the, I think the key part you said, we didn't just fire teachers who didn't speak, or who weren't bilingual certified. We, for those who left, transferred schools, for those who retired, we filled that position, the, the lead, the principal filled that position, looking specifically for people who have bilingual certification. And so it was... So I guess that's a, a great way to talk about that. What is, what are the, what's the role of a teacher who doesn't speak um, multiple languages or isn't bilingual certified at a bilingual school? So uh, English, English monolingual teachers or dominant speaking teachers are very critical. And if that's the population, and that's why I always say that dual language is wonderful and I'm a big proponent of dual language. That's my life's work. Yes. But it's not necessarily... Um, the, the right fit for all schools if you don't have the, the personnel, if you don't have the students, if you don't have the will, if you have too many con constraints uh, in terms of policies around the district, then these programs are very difficult to enact. So, for example, in the school where I was a dual language teacher in Chicago, there were a lot of English speaking teachers, so uh, we couldn't do an 80-20 or a 90-10 because that requires that all the early primary grade teachers are bilingual. So 
in, in making decisions about what program is best, is a best fit for a school, is you have to consider all those elements. And one of them, and the most important, is the, the, the teachers. So that you, uh, we don't really want to create uh, animosity between English dominant or English monolingual teachers and bilingual teachers. So that's, that sort of contradicts what we're all about. So uh, that's why those considerations need to be um, at the forefront of decision making. Yeah. And so English, when I was a teacher in, in Chicago and in Tucson, my team partners were monolingual English speaking. And we worked very well together and we planned together and, and it created a really very solid team. Right. And also in, in that respect, um, I think that's a bit beneficial for English speaking teachers to be part of, of something like dual language education because yes. then they become immersed in the bilingual education world. Nice. Whereas typically they wouldn't because they're gen ed teachers. Right. So it's a great opportunity. Because I think one of the main benefits is that they understand that uh, there's no need for an English-only policy. No. Right. Exactly. Right. You talked about a structure of 80-20 and 90-10. Can you tell us about what are some structures uh, for those who want to start a bilingual or dual language program? So there are uh, several decisions that need to be made. And before the decisions are made, uh, there needs to be some kind of needs assessments. I, as I was talking about this, this uh, at, at Gates, um, New Gates Elementary, and the decisions have to be based on the existing demographics and the existing conditions of the school and the school district. And then sort of having a long-term plan that potentially could incorporate new, new horizons for that school or school district. So um, an 80-20 or a 90-10 program typically is what we refer to as immersion. A 50-50 is sort of partial immersion. And so, um, the research tells us that you know an 80-20 or an 90-10 is a better um, program to implement or program model to implement to have sort of deeper biliteracy and, and deeper um, proficiency in, in the two languages, especially in the language of English that we often refer to as lote. Norte? Lote. Language other than English. Language other than English. Okay. Lote. Right, because in the past we used to refer to uh, the minority language, but yeah. the minority language is not. Terminology is always a problem, so all, all, all terminology is problematic. But, yeah. So language other than English, yes. It's always evolving. Yes, evolving. So what is the breakdown of the 80 and 20 or 90, 10? Like what is the, where's the... The home language and then the, and then the English language. Where is that? So in the context of the United States, for example, it would be 80% or 90% in the lote, in the language other than English. Uh -huh. But if you were, for example, in Latin America, it would, might be the other way around, right? It would be uh, 80 or 90% in English uh, and 10 or 20% at the beginning uh, of grades in, in, in uh, Spanish. So in Vietnam, it would be, uh, what would it be then? It would be uh, in English, so it would be 80, 80 or 90, 90 in English, and then the 20 or 10 in Vietnamese, yeah. Exactly. So the language of society would be the lesser amount, the lesser percentage in the early grades. Yes. And then by, I don't know, third, fourth, or fifth grade, um, there's a, as the, the, um, the lote is diminished, in this case, in English, 
uh, and uh, the, the, the English language is increased uh, to gain to come to a 50-50% of the use of each language for instruction and learning. I, I always thought that in a bilingual school dual-language dual language program that you had to speak multiple languages. So I, so I speak Spanish pretty poorly, but I was like, wow, am I going to have to teach English and Spanish? That's going to be interesting. So, well, in a 50-50 program or even in an 80-20-90-10, by the time you get to sort of fourth grade, you could have that team teaching situation. So we could be team partners. I could be the Spanish teacher and you could be the English teacher. Um, and you could use your Spanish, of course. So you talk about collaboration as key. Yes, very critical. What else are, what other principles that are really key to effective dual language programs? Key principles are um, including the culture. So we know that the, the universal goals of dual language education, uh, because it's an additive program, is academic achievement, of course, and bilingualism, biliteracy, language, and culture, the cultural component. Um, so it's critical to incorporate those. It's very difficult to do that in the United States and, and I'm sure in other countries as well because of all the federal and state and local mandates. Um, and all of those tend to be very English-centric. And so um, English is really dictates what happens in the curriculum, in the assessment, in the instructional materials, and even in instructional approaches. Um, what we've seen lately is a proliferation of RTIs, response to intervention. So response to intervention now is given to many students that uh, really shouldn't be given to many students. It, it was really designed for students who were struggling. It was originally designed with special education students in mind. And so I see in a lot of schools and districts uh, they're doing RTIs for English learners. And by the way, the, the term English learners, I'm trying to get away from that because it's another uh, term that is very English centric. Yes. So we used to, we, way back when, when I was way back when, when I was a teacher, uh, we called them uh, bilingual students. They were bilingual students. So now um, I don't like uh, emerging bilinguals because it, it, it's, the, it's an insinuation that they stay emergent. So I'm using the term developing bilinguals. Yes. So now the problem with developing bilinguals, uh, you don't identify whether they're English learners or Spanish learners or Vietnamese learners in two-way yeah. programs. Right? Yeah. So um, the, the developing bilinguals that are uh, English, developing English as a second language is, um, is critical. Yeah, it's, I just changed my, my handle from Tan ELL Classroom to just Tan K Win because the same thing because I'm realizing, wow, I was right. promoting English only, English privilege, English priority. Uh, exactly. But it's really talking about multi, multilingualism. Multilingualism, bilingualism, right, right. So I think we need to resuscitate the, the, those words, bilingualism, multilingualism. Right. I had a person on Twitter say, ask me like, well, I, start, I support bi, bi uh, bilingualism, but students need to know the uh, academic language. So that's why I call them English language learners. So, so what do you say to that? So um, would that kind of implies that only English has academic language yes. and the student's native language does not? Yes. Um, so <laughs> mm, that's a little flawed. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, the, the, in a perfect world, uh, students would become multilingual, multi multiliterate. 
Right. Or right. the very, very minimum, they would become bilingual and biliterate. Right. Um, and bicultural or multicultural, right. which right. Is, is, is something that I've been uh, doing uh, several presentations on in regards to uh, the notion of having uh, a biliteracy pedagogy that is culturally based. Mm. And how do we do that? And how do we incorporate the culture in the listening, speaking, reading, and writing? Right. Uh, because I always say to, to, to teachers and to, to uh, principals and, and leaders, the kids are reading and writing about something. They're talking and listening about something. And so why don't we make that something culturally relevant something? Yes. Um, so and instead of, of relying on control text and decodable text and, you know, the proliferation of um, uh, leveled books that ends up being leveling children, yes. which is what we used to call the, the ability grouping. It's yes. become ability grouping yeah. all over again. I want to talk more about that cultural part. How do, because I want to hear about it using students culture i always see like flags and festival and we're we're moving away from the idea of flags and festival and you talked about that you said well it's yes. taking the content of students home experiences and using that as a context for learning exactly so um i don't know if you know rooting uh, sims bishop yes he talked about mirrors and and windows and mirrors and sliding doors yes. and we have to include that so the, 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 the students need to see themselves in the material, in the books that they're reading, and then be introduced to new worlds, new experiences, and be able to come and go in that sliding door. So it's, it's, it's really important not to do the heroes on holidays. Yeah. Uh, stay away from that. What, what um, we call the tour and detour to multicultural education. Yes. And the detour is just that. Okay, kids, it's Martin Luther King or it's um, Cinco de Mayo, which they don't even celebrate in Mexico. Uh, and let's do let's drop everything and do that. And 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 the detour is um, I'm sorry, the tour is uh, let's go look at those exotic people in Chinatown or in Little Italy or wherever. And so that is the very worst kind of right. multicultural approach right. that is not really integrated and embedded in everything we do. Yeah. We want culturally sustaining, affirming approaches. Yes. Yeah. How, after, after years of work in this, in this field, because you're one of the leaders in bicultural education, bi dual language education, what have you noticed, what does the research say over all these years about the effectiveness of bilingual, uh, Dual language programs? So we've seen a, a big jump in dual language programs all over the country um, and elsewhere as well. And we know that it's, it's, it's very effective, but it's only very effective if it's implemented correctly. Mm, yes. Um, and so that's why we have, um, we've had issues with, you know, the, the image of bilingual education in the past, not because bilingual education is inherently uh, flawed, but it's because of the way that it's implemented. Yes. And so implementation of dual language programs really require a long-term commitment. Mm -hmm. And so I talk about sustainability. And the sustainability comes into, you know, a, a solid planning. And also commitment, sort of long-term commitment from administrators. And one of the problems with education in general is that new leadership comes in, 
and bring in new ideas and new programs yes. and sort of do away with the existing what is already there. And so how do we create something that is sustainable, uh, particularly with language education? And that includes word language education, dual language, bilingual education, heritage language uh, education programming, uh, just sort of, you know, putting all those language programming and even ESL in that, even though ESL is English as a second language, it, it's all, they're all interconnected by language and culture, or they should be. Yes. And so how do we protect that language education that is usually in a lot of districts is kind of an afterthought or is something that we have to do because the law says we have to do it, but it's not really well thought out. And oftentimes it's not quite part of the strategic plan of a district or even sometimes of a state. Yeah, that's, that's really hard. So long-term commitment. How long-term commitment, um, uh, becoming educated, uh, educated about second language acquisition, educated about bilingual education, educated about bilingualism and literacy, and then having the will to think outside the box. And the will outside the box includes uh, the decision makers all the way to the top, that includes um, Board of Education right. members, in terms of what do, what's the bottom line for districts is test scores. And so we, we yeah, that's, that's problematic because that, that drives everything. Yes. And that is, of course, English-centric. And therefore, the, the programs that are adopted are English-centric. And the materials that are adopted are English-centric. And so everything revolves about around English rather than revolving around more than English. Yes, English is very critical, but it could be more than that. Right. It doesn't just have to be English. Right. It's, it's, it's an additive approach instead of saying only approach. It's saying, yes, exactly. we know that in the, in the, the language of work is English, but not, it doesn't only have to be English. Because the, we, in corporations, people can speak different languages. And, and globally, yeah, the way, yeah. Globally, even nationally in the United States, I'm sure, uh, and Vietnam as well, and elsewhere, we need bilingual and biliterate, the workforce. Right. Uh, for example, um, you know, nurses that can speak the language of the communities uh, is very critical right, for health issue, reasons. And um, so, so it's, very, it's, it's, a, it's an asset to be biliterate. Uh, is not uh, a deficit. Yes. How else do you see that schools have struggled to implement it correctly? Incorrectly, yeah. Uh, one of the one of the big challenges is the personnel. So finding bilingual teachers that are qualified. If we don't have the teachers, uh, for example, here in Chicago, we, we have a um, we used to have a bigger Polish population. Now we have a pretty big. Uh, after Spanish, uh, Arabic, Polish, yeah. but we don't have any Polish dual language schools. And, and we do have Polish speaking teachers, but the population is not concentrated. Right. And so, um, so in, in uh, suburbs or smaller towns, it's very difficult to get um, the bilingual teachers. Um, so that's a big challenge. Uh, in languages other than languages like Chinese and Arabic and Spanish, uh, for example, Quran. I, I work in a, in a district in New York that has a big Quran population, speaking population, and they don't have teachers that are, and, and it would be very difficult to get materials. And, and so it's difficult to do like a Quran um, bilingual program because of that. So sometimes 
the only choice, like viable choice, is English as a second language program. And that's why I wrote that book. I have another book on dual language, but this book on school-wide approaches is because not everybody can do bilingual education and dual language. Let's talk about that because I, I got your book and there are nine myths around uh, dual language programs. Could you talk about those nine and help us understand them? Yes. Um, so the, I think that the nine myths, uh, let me just read them to you. Um, and there are many more. Uh, the myth that uh, developing bilinguals don't, don't need specialized support, the grandfather myth that uh, Krashen talks much about, uh, my grandfather came to the United States and therefore uh, didn't have any bilingual education and therefore, you know, nobody else needs bilingual education. He was fine. Uh, why do, what, yes. Yeah. So, so, fine, so why does someone else need it, right? But now, now we're talking about my great-grandfather, right? Because it's been a while. So that's mostly for people in the 40s and 50s uh, after World War II. Uh, the myth that immigrants refuse to learn English, the home learning myth, the myth that young children learn languages more easily, the myth that more English is better, the myth that speaking equals proficiency, the myth that learning two languages causes confusion, and the myth that errors should be corrected immediately. Mm. So you, you asked me uh, about the top three. Yes. And I think the top three, for me, number one and two would be um, the notion that more English is better. Um, and Cummings and others talk about this as the maximum exposure hypothesis or the time on task principle. Uh, meaning that, and, and this comes from the Canadian immersion model, where the Canadian immersion model was, you know, in French immersion, and all the kids that were, it used to be, uh, were English speakers. And so that's where this comes from. Like, the more that you, you spend time on task with French as an English speaker, the better you're going to be at becoming you know, fluent in French. And the same with the maximum exposure hypothesis. The, most you're, the most, more you're exposed to French, the better you're going to learn uh, the language. But that is like, it's apples and oranges when compared to the United States. Yes. And developing bilinguals who are developing English as their second language, it's a totally different situation because they're in a society that is in English and the immersion model here in the United States in English is the teachers are not bilingual, right. the parents right. didn't choose the program. So it's really a bunch of other, other reasons why that time on task principle doesn't, doesn't fly, doesn't hold water. Um, so the young children, the other myth that is big is that young children learn English faster and easier. And, and we know from research that's not quite, that doesn't hold water much either. It, it apparently looks that way to the outside uh, untrained eye. And that's because young children have more time. They have higher motivation because they want to play and they want to have access to their peers to play. Uh, so high, that's, that's a high motivation. They, they also are, um, they, they are more immersed in, in the culture and the language because they're younger and they may have siblings, siblings that speak the, the language. Uh, but in essence, what we know is that um, adolescent and adults actually, it's easier because we have more word knowledge, we have more experience. For young children, they have to develop both the concepts and the content and the language associated with the concepts and right. the content. So it's actually more difficult for them. So this, this it, 
and also the notion that young children, they, they'll just like by osmosis, they'll learn it. They're just being there, you know, they're learning without any support. Or, um, and the third one I would say is the notion that um, speaking equals full proficiency, academic proficiency. Exactly, exactly. And so oftentimes the untrained eye again, I will hear the kids speaking in English in the playground or wherever and assume that the students are fully proficient academically in English. And, and that's why they struggle. Right. Uh, because they, they have that social conversational, which we know social conversational language um, uses more high frequency words and shorter sentences and phrases and is more contextualized or less abstract, all those kind of things. Right, right. They need to be taught explicitly the language content. Exactly. Yeah. Because right. it's, it's not natural, because they don't, because that's usually in text. Exactly. Right. So, you know, think about, you know, even English speaking kids in the United States, for example, they, they don't come with academic English, most of them. Right. Their academic English is developed in school right. over a long period of time. And the same for uh, academic Vietnamese and academic Chinese and academic Spanish. Yes. We, we're not born with that, uh, that kind of language. That language is kind of learned in school and acquired in school. I, one of the myths that you talked about was the need to correct. Can you talk about that? So error correction, there's a whole discipline in linguistics about error correction. And oh, it's wow. very, very extensive and fascinating. <laughs> um, so th there are multiple camps uh, about error correction, but mostly uh, educators and bilingual education uh, subscribe to that we do have to uh, attend to errors, but the way that we correct errors is oftentimes um, not very effective. Yes. So um, we talk about in the field about um, uh, corrective feedback, um, that is positive feedback for the students to sort of, the way that writers write and learn is by getting edits from an editor, for example, and learning from those edits. Yes. So um, error correction is for language learning has to be gradual mm. because there are so many errors as a language learner yes. that um, the teacher can't overcorrect because then the, the whole point of correcting a student is for the student to internalize those corrections and to understand what is the, the proper or the conventional way of spelling or of saying or of pronunciation. And of course, pronunciation is a whole different can of worms. <laughs> so we won't go into pronunciation. So, so what do we do when students say something incorrectly? Incorrectly? Yes. Well, of course, we, we talk about modeling, but modeling is often not enough. Yes. So the, the best way for students to, the, you want the students to internalize and self-correct. Right. So the same, the same uh, model that we follow for literacy when we make a mistake, when we read something, even as adults, we self-correct often because why we're attending to the meaning. And so for students, we, we want them to have uh, practice. And pr what I mean by practice is not rote learning. It's not, I don't know uh, if in Vietnam they still do this, but in Latin America, they do like, you know, write a sentence 20 times. Yes. And that's how you're going to learn how to write, whatever it is. And so that's the bad kind of practice, which is the road practice. But having the students um, gradual 
exploration, mm. uh, exposure, uh, usage uh, of the conventional way of either writing something or the way to um, speak speaks of particular language uh, constructs or words is that's the best way to sort of become that self-correcting right. over time. It's active engagement, using the language. Using the language. So the more you use it, the same, the same premise as writing. The more, the more you write, the better you write. The more you read, the better you read. And, right. and the better you, you gain vocabulary and knowledge. And, yeah. Why, why does, so Cummings talked about this in my podcast, but I'd love for you to talk about it again. Why, the, there's a myth that learning another language confuses other students. Why is that a myth? I think that uh, myth probably originated from you know, young children when mm. they code mi mix, when they mix the two languages, or they have what some people in the field call interference or influence. Yes. So the cross-linguistic influence that are sort of this negative cross-linguistic influence, for example, in Chinese language, there, there are no plurals and there are no um, past tense, there are no tenses, right? Yes. So when, when language learners that are Chinese speakers make those errors in, um, in English, like I have to book, yes. it's because there is that influence from yes. their native language. Yes. Right? So, so there's this perception that that's confusion, but it's not confusion. Um, and, and if you look at places like Europe where it's, it's, the, it's the norm to have three or four languages by the time you graduate from high school. Yes. It's, it's not, they're not confused or they may be confused, but for other reasons, yes. um, not because of language. And so we know the phenomenon of bilinguals, simultaneous bilinguals. At first, when they're one, two, three-year-olds, yes, they, they do inter interact with the two languages and, com and combine them. But eventually they separate. They know when they're speaking to an English speaker and they know when they're speaking to a Vietnamese speaker right. and they can separate those two. Right. It's so like there are lots, lots of mythology, but also, you know, in the, in the 50s or so, um, that confusion uh, led uh, many schools to identify these children as be, having special education needs Ugh. because they were yeah. mixing the two languages. So, yeah. Yeah, I talked to Julie Espada Brown, and she said in, in her book about supporting duly identified language learners, she said, language learners represent a significant proportion of students who are identified for special ed, yet they don't make their, they're not the, the largest population in schools. Right. Yet they're underrepresented in special education. Yes, and it, it's really critically terrible in languages other than so the norm, the, the, the most uh, common languages like Spanish and Chinese and Arabic. Mm -hmm. uh, in other languages where there's no one that speaks the language at school. And so there's no, there are no ways of assessing whether the student actually has a learning disability or if it's just language development that is not yet there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, yeah. It, it can be, I'm sorry, go ahead. A lot, a lot of misclassified, uh, kids who are misclassified. Yes. And, and then, then we, we had the other end of the, the, the spectrum because that happened a lot. Uh, what happened for a, for a period of time was that the, the, the students, for fear of that, the students that really were special education needs were not 
getting the, the services because oh, they were yeah. not getting tested. Right. right. It, it swung around the other way. Exactly. Right. So we only have about 15 minutes left, but I, sure. but one more question that I want to ask you is like, what does in fact, if, what does effective instructional, sorry, what are the effective instructional practices for teachers to support students in bilingual dual language programs look like? The, the, the best practices are those that are transaction, transactional in nature than, that, rather than transmission oriented. Um, so I can start with the worst practices, which are rote learning, uh, drill and kill, yes. um, you know, uh, discrete skills without any context or meaning. So what is the best? The best is to start from practices that are meaning-based, always must be meaning-based. Even when you teach discrete skills like phonics, they should be attached to meaning of words that make sense. Um, uh, authentic, that are authentically engaging the students, that, are, um, that the students are problem solving and thinking critically is very, very important. So I think things like uh, cooperative learning and thematic approach, um, um, you know, um, what do you call it? Um, Co-creating meaning with the teacher. Yes. Uh, those are the types of um, approaches that are most effective for all students. And if you look at uh, the very wealthy schools, that's what they're doing yes. in wealthy schools. So why aren't we doing that? You know, sort of the gifted yes. type of curriculum. Yes. The gifted type of curriculum should be for all students. Yes. Project-based approach right. and, and inquiry-based approach. And, and that's what really is uh, the most effective, deeper, deepest learning. I appreciate what you said. It's as transactional instead of a transmission base where it's it's like constructivism students are using language for a purpose instead yeah. of memorizing language to memorize it yeah. so that can happen you know, the, the the language learning theory that uh, we we learn language we learn about language and we le learn through language yes really. and those are three interrelated aspects but they're different Yes, and so we should incorporate all those three in language teaching and learning. I also appreciated how you talked about the things that you talked about, the effective practices that occur at wealthier schools um, do not happen at other, at uh, lowest socioeconomic schools. And, we, and I always laugh because it's, if we were to use the practices found in uh, lower performing schools, on middle class or upper class families, there would be a, there would be protests by the families. That would never fly. It would never fly. So oh. exactly. So the the listeners test is if you were to do this practice with our language learners, would this exactly. fly for a person in a in a in a affluent community? And that's the equity part because yes. you know I always say, um, and and this is uh, Jonathan Kosel said that this a long time ago. Everybody gets the same high stakes test. Yeah. You know, so, you know, the very wealthy kids get that, that same test and as well as the kids that go to a school where they get $6,000 per pupil. Yes. And the same student, the same test is given to the student that goes to a 25000 per pupil school. Right. And so that's, that's not equity. No. Let's end. Is there anything else that you want to talk about, about bilingual education before, or dual language education before we go to end the podcast? Oh, I do have a question. What can school leaders do? 
what can school leaders do? Um, well, that's the million dollar question. Yes. So school leaders should, number one, become educated about bilingualism, biliteracy, and bilingual education. Um, they should become advocates. They should be, have the, the will to think outside the box. Yes. Um, and in, in, in doing that, um, you know, they, they should have at the forefront equity, access, and inclusion. Mm. Uh, because English learners and developing bilinguals typically are, are sort of um, sort of marginalized, um, and so that the and also that 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 really thinking that the premise um, that language and literacy development is the core of everything else for mm. for a student to be successful in school, and that language and literacy development for a language learner is very much tied to culture and identity. And that's something that is often forgotten. And so we have to take, we have to take care of the, the, the social, emotional well-being of students. And in the political climate, global yes. and in the United States, uh, it, that is very anti-immigrant, that is very anti-minority, that is very anti-people of color, um, that social, emotional piece has to be at the forefront as well. Right. Because if you don't, if you're suffering emotionally as a, as a student, how much learning is there, is there gonna be going on? Right, right. They talked about, on Twitter they say, you need Maslow before you can bloom. So you, exactly, you yes. Safe. I, feel, I feel for principals who are, who are in a mono, mono, monolingual school trying to transition, because it's really tough, because it's really, it's, I think they start with the culture. I guess they have to be, not just instructional leaders, but they have to be uh, PR campaigns. Exactly. Yeah, you're, you're a diplomat. Yeah. In, in, in a, you're in the school, a school principal is a diplomat. In be, go, it's a go between the higher ups and, right. and, and your people in your school. And so I, I always, I've always said that the, the school principal is sort of the critical component. Yes. Because unfortunately, education is hierarchical. Right. And yes, teachers are at the grassroots and very critical, but without a, a good principal, that leads and sets the tone for the, cl the culture and climate of the school, then it's an uphill battle. It's the culture setting. Yes. Right, because if, if we set the culture, then we'll find practices that fit that culture. Yeah. Exactly. What about families? We haven't talked about families yet. Families, very, very critical to incorporate and, and welcome families, but also make them integral to the decision-making processes of the school. Um, having, you know, parent councils in the school and having, um, you know, interacting with, we're having an open door policy for, for parents and families. And oftentimes it's not the parents only, but also the community. It's sort of, uh, in many cultures, it's the entire community that is raising the child. And so we have to incorporate the community, incorporate so that everybody has buy-in in what the school is doing, but also empower the parents and the families. Because in a lot of cultures, you drop your child at the door and, you know, the school knows best. And sometimes the school doesn't know best. And so that we have to empower the, the and I don't like that word too much because that's giving power to somebody else, but they themselves become empowered to, to speak up. And, and to question things when they don't like something. So they're like, you know, what middle class and upper middle class parents do, uh, we have to teach uh, uh, all parents to, to, to uh, voice their opinion and voice their displeasure when, when things are not quite right for them. Right. And I think families can be more integrated, going back to that culture piece where you talked about uh, culture, biliteracy, biculturalism. 
where they can, teachers and schools can connect with families and saying, we're learning about this unit. What can you add from your experience? It's not just saying- Funds of knowledge, yes. Yes, you have the funds of knowledge. Yeah. What can you use? Uh, Lee Small was on my dissertation committee and I, I participated in the funds of knowledge, the original research study, and it, mm. it's just wonderful. It, it's just awesome to include that funds of knowledge. And, and we as educators learn from the parents and the families. And so it's very important to include that, their funds of knowledge. Who is the, that? Louis Small. Okay. Oh, Louis Small. Yeah, the know? person that started the Funds of Knowledge yes. concept. Funds of Knowledge, yeah, yeah. yeah at the University of Arizona, yes. Wow. And that person was on your dissertation? Yes, yes, I worked with him, yeah. Oh, He's I would love to. And so was uh, Richard Ruiz, who passed away a few years ago, unfortunately. When I end the podcast, I'm going to ask you if you, you can connect me to Dr. Mould. To of see course. What about that. Oh, yes, yes. He has retired, but yeah, I'll, I'll connect you to him. Oh, wow. Okay, let's end this. How did an hour go by so fast? Oh, is it all, oh it's over already? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's end with uh, this, uh, Sonia, traffic light teaching. So what is your red light, yellow light, green light uh, about dual language education. Red light is something you ask teachers to stop so doing. So many for each, but um, my, my big, big red light, which is my pet peeve, is don't use worksheets. Yes. No worksheets. Just say no to worksheets. <laughs> and there are many other things, but worksheets is deadly. Deadly worksheets. Don't do worksheets. The worksheets are rote. Worksheets are um, trans transmission oriented and they don't get kids to be critical thinkers and problem solvers. Uh, yellow light was take it easy. Yeah, take it easy. A question about your practice. Um, I think take it easy on the pressure that teachers put on themselves, particular yes. bilingual teachers, the okay. pressure to get the students to English as quickly as possible because of the pressure of the tests. Right. Um, and, and I know that's easier said than done uh, because there are high stakes associated with that. Mm -hmm. But be compassionate with yourself because bilingual teachers are doing twice as much. Right. You're doing more. Right. And the green light was do more of that. Um, hmm. um, children's literature, authentic children and young adult literature, do more of that. Um, convince the others, convince the principal, convince the district. We really have to go back to doing uh, authentic children's literature approach to teaching content and to teaching literacy and language. That's the vehicle for culture, language, bilingualism, biliteracy. Yes. And there's so many awesome, awesome and multilingual children's literature. Um, so that, that would be my green light. Yes, that's beautiful. And I think someone was, I, interviewed another person. He said, make sure that the uh, multicultural book that you're reading is not a translated version. It's in, from the person of that culture for kids of that culture. And not, it's not just like the English version translated over. Yes. Yeah. You can use some of those, but yeah. you also want to have, you know, the, the, the authors from the culture. Mm -hmm. And for the Latinos, for example, for Latinos and even Asian uh, Americans is having Asian American and Latino American authors, which are different than Asian authors and Latino authors, right? So those are two 
different things because the Asian American and Latino American are, you know, have a different hybridity of their culture that is specific to the and special to the U.S., which yes. is where um, the students. You live. just said an SAT word, hybridity. The hybridity, yes. Well. Thank you, Sonia, for your leadership in this field. I know that we looked for, look to you for research and literature on dual language education, and you have really set that. And so we appreciate it. You have been a light for us, and your this podcast has been amazing. I felt like I was just sitting and listening to a keynote of like of your years of research. Oh, thank you. Thank you so for cool. inviting me, guys. It's a pleasure meeting you. And next time you should do the podcast and I should listen, or we should all listen and interview you. <laughs> I, know. I just, li I just, I'm, I stand on the shoulders of giants like you. So. Oh. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's really a true pleasure. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I invite you to rate this podcast and leave a comment. Each episode takes three to four hours to record and edit. So your comments make all the hours worth it. And your reviews will help educators like you find the podcast. Now, on to our recap. I know some of you are living in multilingual homes, raising children in two languages. I hope Sonia's suggestion helps to inform your structure of your dual language home. I'll take my nieces for an example. My sister and the adults in the house should be using Vietnamese around 90% of the time, if not 100% of the time, while my nieces are younger, so they can have a foundation of Vietnamese before they start formal education. As they get older, that percentage decreases to reach a balance of 50-50 ratio. The crucial part is starting the early years with students' home language. On another note, if you are a school leader or a district level admin, Sonia encourages us to stay with the commitment of sustaining dual language programs if they already exist in your district. And if they don't exist, only start with them if the school district sees them as a long-term service that they will provide to families. As administrators come and go, our job is to campaign for evergreen dual language programs. Sonia says that if we want to have a successful dual language program, it cannot be something that we just have to do to meet the law, but it is something that we want to do because it enriches students' learning experiences. Finally, when I asked Sonia about the most effective practices towards the end of the podcast, she said that the best ones are transactional rather than transmission-based. Any activity that students are creating meaning is transactional. These are the most effective practices in dual language programs and to be honest, effective for all students because students are creating with language instead of memorizing language patterns. In the next episode, we'll have the one and only Dr. Ophelia Garcia come join us to talk about translanguaging. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.